It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. May 6, 1945 is known as VE Day. V standing for victory, E standing for Europe. This was the momentous day when the war in Europe ended. Nazism was officially stopped and the victory celebrations commenced. Hey, this is Eric. I'm a guy who loves to celebrate, whoop, and give high fives. But I'm torn looking back on this occasion knowing what the Allied troops should have done. I think it was right for them to celebrate. But it was also critical that they remember the war was not completely over. It was appropriate for them to whoop and give high fives, but not to turn a blind eye to the very real and growing threat of communism in Eastern Europe and the fact that the Japanese were still waging war in the Pacific theater. So many of us stopped short of full and complete victory. So let's make sure we learn the lesson of VE Day and press forward with increased vigor to the very end. By the way, if you would like to learn more about our upcoming week-long program, which starts in less than two weeks, please visit ellersley.com forward slash daily. The Monday edition of Daily Thunder commences. Uh, it is, if you were in Colorado, uh, you would be very impressed with the fact that anyone is even here uh, right now. We had, and I don't know, have you guys, do you have a measurement on this? Was it 11 inches? Uh, is that about right? I mean, I could just round up to a foot, you know, which sounds a lot better. But we had a close to a foot of snow uh, yesterday. And I do want to remind us that it is October uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> so we've had a, it fits 2020 though. I think we've all been joking about that, that if it could be odd, I mean, we've had drought conditions in Colorado all through the summer, extreme heat. And then in September, we have a snowstorm. Then we go back to drought conditions for, what, a month or so, and then we have a foot of snow. <laughs> we, I, I was saying to uh, Nathan, why can't we just have a thunderstorm? Whatever happened to the good old days when you just have rain fall? Instead, we get a foot of snow. We needed it because we have wildfires. To, you know, in, in addition to our drought and our th snowstorms, we have wildfires here in Colorado. You get that thought sometimes that we are a state that <clears throat> maybe is under judgment. You do get that thought. At least it's a bubble thought that does appear, whether or not we say it out loud. But it is uh, an amazing time in which we live. And I am so happy to be alive in it. And I think, you know, a lot of us can mumble and grumble and complain about the oddities of this year, but it's such things that set us up as the church to be strong. It's a constant reminder. One of the things that I've oftentimes said is one of the greatest gifts to my life is the fact that I always have to be preparing a message. And that could be a liability, that could be a pain in the neck, and yet, you know, every uh, week I usually have at least, and this is a minimum, because oftentimes when I speak on weekends or I have additional sessions for Ellerslie, I have a minimum of usually around four messages. And, you know, just having one message in a week would be enough to paralyze most people. But having four, I mean, how in the world can you do that? It, and I would say this is a gift, and not everyone would be prepared to do it, and it takes a lot of years of of prepping to get familiar with the, the process so that it actually can go quick. It used to take me seven months to write a book, and now I could write a book in a week. And that's not an exaggeration. I could, and I have. Uh, but not that I really desire to spend this week doing that. It's a lot of work, and it's a very focused uh, week. But it's a sharpening tool. And the reason I say that is what we're going through in 2020 is a sharpening tool. And it's like every week we have something else to get us on our knees. It's like, praise God. This is great for us as the church. 
if we use it. There's a lot of good trials in this life that go uh, unused and unsavored. And a good trial is a gift. And if we leverage it as the church of Jesus Christ, we become sharper and stronger through it. But when you take a good trial and you grumble about it, it makes you weaker. And so as the church of Jesus Christ, we praise God, we thank him, and we rejoice in and amidst the difficulties, and these are what keep us sharp. So let's delight that we have a foot of snow uh, on the ground this morning, and I'm very impressed with all of you for making it, by the way, so well done. This one is called To the Very End. It is part 84, not to intimidate anyone who might be hearing uh, a Daily Thunder for the first time. going, 84? Yes, this is part 84 in uh, my series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II, but I have to blame it on World War II. It's a long war. I mean, we're talking six years here, and we're about five years and three quarters of the way through right now, so uh, we're in 1945 in a very critical juncture, and it's basically the end. So having the, the word end in my title is, is very uh, apropos, to the very end. And what's interesting is the end to me is not really the focus. And so you'll notice, I don't even know that, know that I'm going to show you the dates for VE Day, which is the victory over Europe. That is not even my focus. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm sort of caught up in Winston Churchill's dilemma and I've been hinting at that uh, throughout this time, and that is that even though we are gaining victory over Hitler, and Hitler is about to fall, Hitler is actually going to die on April 30th, 1945, and VE Day is April, or May 6th, and so we're just days, they're just days apart, where the Germans are going to surrender, lay down their arms, and yay, and victory is you know, pronounced, and everyone in Europe, and especially Great Britain and in America, are just cheering their hearts out, and everything is so wonderful, and Churchill has a heavy heart. And why would someone have a heavy heart in a time like this? And so I've been sort of forecasting this, and that is that there is a growing uh, nemesis, a growing evil that is forming in Eastern Europe, and that is Joseph Stalin. Once he realizes that the common ally of Adolf Hitler is removed, suddenly he can't figure out why he's standing with Great Britain and America, because ideologically they're completely opposite. And so instead of clearing the territory of the Nazis and then leaving it to the countries that once held it, he decides that for the protection of the Soviet Union, he needs to make it a police state. He needs to bring it under his communist wing. And so as a result, you're going to see a travesty of travesties. You kick out one evil in Europe after six years, and then another evil is going to creep in. But here's the danger. In Great Britain and America at this time, they are so overjoyed by accomplishing what they've done in defeating Hitler that it's like they're somehow intoxicated with the rejoicing that they miss what is actually happening. And so in history, in the big picture of history, we can see it. But in the short-term picture of history, it's like, hey, don't rain on my parade. You know, we have something to rejoice in, and they do. I mean, they actually set out to destroy Hitler and to stop Hitler, which was a massive achievement. And technically, at most points along the, uh, the journey, they would have said it's impossible to stop him. Great Britain was standing alone without 
any, they were not ready for World War II, and there is no possible way that they could even survive the Battle of Britain in 1940, let alone come back and defeat Hitler. So this is extraordinary, and you can understand why they would be excited. So we, that's why I'm calling this to the very end. I should have emphasized and made all caps, V-E-R-Y, to the very end. April 1945 is quite the month. In April, on April 5th, you're going to have the accusation from Joseph Stalin. He is going to levy an accusation against the Allies, against Roosevelt's and against Churchill, saying that they have betrayed him and betrayed his trust. This isn't true. This didn't happen, but he is going to be convinced of it. And he is going to accuse the Allies of siding with Germany to turn against the Soviets. And so he is actually going to nurse this in the upcoming weeks. The problem is the one who's always proved the mediator uh, between the, the big three. We have Churchill, we have Roosevelt, and we have Stalin. And that's quite the combination. Churchill and Roosevelt are like good friends. But Stalin, ideologically, he's, he doesn't even fit in. In fact, most of us in hindsight, are like, why were you an ally with Joseph Stalin? Well, it was purely political. I mean, you have to somehow defeat Hitler. And so if you don't want to stand against Soviet Russia, do you want Soviet Russia on Hitler's side? I don't think so. So, hey, uh, yeah, why don't we work together? But it's an unstable relationship. And that's going to prove all the way to the end. Now, what's going to be critical is, the, I call it the death of Franklin on April 12th. So what I have, I'll just read it. The accusation of Joseph is April 5th. April 12th is the death of Franklin. April 28th, the death of Benito, Benito Mussolini. And April 30th, the death of Adolf. This is all happening in one month. And then VE Day, Victory Over Europe Day, is going to be May 6th. So all of this, these are world-altering events that are taking place all at the time that we're like finishing up this war. And the death of Franklin is the big one. That's the one that I mentioned on Friday uh, in the message, the unf an unfinished portrait, that Roosevelt has sort of played the role of a mediator between Stalin and Churchill. And the way I would interpret it through Churchill's words is that Roosevelt was somewhat of a softy when it came to Stalin. He wanted to pacify. He didn't want war with uh, Soviet Russia, which I don't blame him. I, I wouldn't want it that either. And yet at the same time, he's not going to be a hardliner. He's like, hey, we're not budging on this. And so as a result, he sort of played the middle, which allowed Churchill to be maybe a little more firm in the relationship than he would have if Roosevelt wasn't there to soften it. You know how that we can do that. Uh, and yet when Roosevelt dies suddenly... Now suddenly the mediator is gone, and Stalin doesn't like Great Britain, doesn't like Churchill, and that begins to come out more and more as this progresses. So we have an issue uh, right at the time that the war is coming to a conclusion, which is going to be at the beginning of the next month in May. So we're going to call it the dilemma in victory. Should we win this thing or not? Why would you not want to win the war? Because as long as you have a common foe, as long as Hitler still is there, you actually have a reason to work with Stalin. And you can sort of put off all of this. And so this is the dilemma. Isn't that a funny dilemma? It's like we set out six years ago to defeat Hitler, and now we're not exactly sure if we want to defeat him. That's, I don't know that that was ever said publicly, but it is said privately. Listen to this. 
Winston Churchill, I hardly like to consider dismembering Germany until my doubts about Russia's intentions have been cleared away. So we have a strange dilemma in the midst of victory. The hardest time to fight is right when you thought you were done fighting. I don't, okay, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but something about this story really touches me at a deep and personal level because I've had this where you actually emotionally and mentally conclude a long course. It's like, okay, it's done. And you are setting down your weapons and then suddenly the battle swells once again to a fevered pitch. And it's like, that's the hardest time to fight. I don't know if you've ever had it where you're extremely tired and you lay down in bed to sleep and right when you're getting sucked into to sleep, something happens that demands your attention. Uh, you know, it, it's like the classic illustration would be Leslie comes, you know, in because say I got to bed early. You know, one of those great achievements, right? I'm going to get to bed early tonight. Boy, I got, I've gotten up at, you know, four or five this whole entire week. I'm going to get to bed early. So then something happens and Leslie needs something done out in the garage. You know, it's like negative 10 degrees. You know, I'm just falling asleep. That is the hardest time to be a good husband. <laughs> and yet it's the proving ground for a good husband is how you handle that exact situation is actually the essence of your husbandhood. Are you going to think about yourself or are you going to get up and get dressed and go out to the garage, put your boots on and deal with whatever it was, right? And so these moments so I'm going to read it again, just so that we can let it sink in. The hardest time to fight is right when you thought you were done fighting. This is exactly what's going to happen. In world history, we have, just imagine being Great Britain. Why did you set off to fight in this war? Why did you send your children over to battle? Why have you suffered so long and hard to destroy Hitler? Well, Hitler's done. Hitler's gone. So why, and so everyone's rejoicing, you've got big, parades going on and, and everyone's just shouting uh, songs of triumph. And yet, there's still a tremendous battle at hand. I mean, first of all, we, we don't just have Stalin, like I've been hinting at. Japan is still at large. However, Japan isn't close to Great Britain. So as a result, it's like, hey, why would we concern ourselves? That's the Americans' issue. Okay, you can just imagine what this would be like. Excuse me, but I just went to bed. I, you don't wake me up again. This is like, uh, I mean, I, I earned this sleep. We have a challenge on our hands. So Winston Churchill says, the unconditional surrender of our enemies was the signal for the greatest outburst of joy in the history of mankind. That's quite a statement. The Second World War had indeed been fought to the bitter end in Europe. The vanquished as well as the victors felt inexpressible relief. But for us in Britain and the British Empire, who had alone been in the struggle from the first day to the last and staked our existence on the result, there was a meaning beyond what even our most powerful and most valiant allies could feel. Weary and worn, impoverished but undaunted and now triumphant, we had a moment that was sublime. We gave thanks to God for the noblest of all his blessings, the sense that we had done our duty. When in these tumultuous days of rejoicing I was asked to speak to the nation, 
I had borne the chief responsibility in our island for almost exactly five years. Yet it may well be there were few whose hearts were more heavily burdened with anxiety than mine. After reviewing the varied tale of our fortunes, I struck a somber note, which may be recorded here. So in the midst of this triumph, Churchill's asked to speak to the nation, and I'm going to give you the speech. This is, this is quite the speech, because it's not what you would expect. You see, everything that I'm setting you up for in this message is exactly what is on Churchill's heart. Now, you have to recognize that's where I'm getting this from. I'm, I'm going through Churchill's memoirs. The chronology of World War II that I'm teaching is out of Churchill's memoirs, which are long, by the way. And as a result, you're going to see that I've had a British perspective, even though I'm American and my name seems to be German somehow, uh, that I, my lens through which I'm, I'm looking at this, again, have I mentioned my middle name is Winston? All right, so I feel connected with this guy through this. And for whatever reason, I feel like I'm carrying his burdens, even though it's quite a few years later, right? And right now, I feel like I'm in his shoes and I am weighed down in the midst of this triumph. It sort of bothers me because I was sort of excited to have some partying going on. Instead, I'm weighed down because I know that this battle is not yet over. So let's go through his speech. This is profound. May 6, 1945, the speech to the nation. I wish I could tell you tonight that all our toils and troubles were over. Then indeed I could end my five years service happily, and if you thought that you had had enough of me and that I ought to be put out to grass, I would take it with the best of grace. But on the contrary, I must warn you, as I did when I began this five years task, and no one knew then that it would last so long, that there is still a lot to do, and that you must be prepared for further efforts of mind and body and further sacrifices to great causes if you are not to fall back into the rut of inertia, the confusion of aim, and the craven fear of being great. You must not weaken in any way in your alert and vigilant frame of mind. Though holiday rejoicing is necessary to the human spirit, yet it must add to the strength and resilience with which every man and woman turns again to the work they have to do, and also to the outlook and watch they have to keep on public affairs. On the continent of Europe, we have yet to make sure that the simple and honorable purposes for which we entered the war are not brushed aside or overlooked in the months following our success, and that the words freedom, Democracy and liberation are not distorted from their true meaning as we have understood them. There would be little use in punishing the Hitlerites for their crimes if law and justice did not rule, and if totalitarian or police governments were to take the place of the German invaders. See, he is making a strong statement about Stalin without saying Stalin. Remember, he's still an ally with Stalin, and so this is a rather delicate issue, but he's trying to make it clear that the state of Europe is still hanging in the balance and we need to walk this through to its end. We seek nothing for ourselves, but we must make sure that those causes which we fought for find recognition at the peace table, in fact, as well as words. In fact, as well as words. And above all, we must labor to ensure that the world organization which the United Nations are creating in San Francisco does not become an idle name does not become a shield for the strong and a mockery for the weak. It is the victors who must search their hearts in their glowing hours and be worthy of, by their nobility of the immense forces that they wield. We must never forget that beyond all lurks Japan, 
harassed and failing, but still a people of a hundred millions, for whose warrior's death has few terrors. I cannot tell you tonight how much time or what exertions will be required to compel the Japanese to make amends for their odious treachery and cruelty. We, like China, so long undaunted, have received horrible injuries from them ourselves, and we are bound by the ties of honor and fraternal loyalty to the United States to fight this great war at the other end of the world at their side without flagging or failing. We must remember that Australia and New Zealand and Canada were and are all directly menaced by this evil power. These dominions come to our aid in our dark times, and we must not leave unfinished any task which concerns their safety and their future. I told you hard things at the beginning of these last five years. You did not shrink, and I should be unworthy of your confidence and generosity if I did not still cry. Listen to his final statements. Forward, unflinching, unswerving, indomitable, till the whole task is done and the whole world is safe and clean. All right, so if you were to ask me the question, so how was this responded to? I don't know that I'm going to answer that yet because that would be a spoiler alert. However, it's interesting because as long as there are threats on your shores and Luftwaffe's are flying over and bombing your country, it makes sense to stand up and be bold. But when they're on the other side of the world bombing someone else, it's harder and that's a life lesson for all of us. It is obvious when it's hitting our backyard that we need to do something. But when it's hitting someone else's backyard, and then Jesus says, and when it hits someone's backyard, act as if it's your own backyard. That's basically what the Bible is going to teach us. It's going to say, don't just look at your own backyard, but treat everyone else's backyard as if it's your own. And as a result, carry the burdens of others. When they suffer, you suffer. When they rejoice, you rejoice. You share in this. There's a unity amongst us as believers, but also in the world. There's a, a common suffering. And when there's evil out there, there is something that needs to be done. And this is a tension that we as Americans have had. Our foreign policy from uh, George Washington onward until uh, Wilson came along in World War I was we have nothing to do with foreign battles. And, you know, for all practical purposes, Americans, we really like it. It makes total sense. We're an isolated territory over here, and they want to fight their territorial wars over in Europe. Let them fight them. But they have nothing to do with us. World War I is going to shift that. And then we're going to see in World War II, we're going to try our best to stay out of this thing. And I, you know, to be honest, I don't blame us. It just if you look at it on paper, we're in the middle of a Great Depression. What do we have to bring? It's not our war. And yet, it was an ideological war that was sweeping the world at the time. And we were next. And when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, it's the greatest mistake. Well, there were two great mistakes of World War II. Hitler attacking Soviet Russia. I mean, you cannot think of a dumber thing. Soviet Russia was supplying them with arms at the time. And they're going to attack him because Hitler was nursing a deep vengeance against communists. Bolsheviks, communists, to all of them, he, they're Jews. To him, they're all Jews. That's, how, that's what he would say. A communist is a Jew. And so to him, that was the entire mindset, and he wanted them destroyed. So that, that was a big blunder. And then Japan bombing Pearl Harbor. 
Boy, you take those two things out, and it's a completely different world we live in. Fascinating statement, but the enemy overplays his hand constantly. He cannot hold himself. You know, the fruit of the Spirit includes something known as self-control. The devil doesn't have it. And so it's a fascinating statement. He doesn't have that wonderful fruit. He cannot contain himself. His vengeance comes out. It slips out. His lies get exposed because he can't hold back. Forward, unflinching, unswerving, indomitable till the whole task is done and the whole world is safe and clean. Now, that's not the way we would express it as Christians. We would have a different flavoring to the words because it's not war for us. It is, but it's not this sort of war. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against Stalin or Hitler. It's against that which is puppeteering them. And there are souls that are hanging in the balance that need to know Jesus. You see, our, our goal is not that the world is safe and clean of Hitler and Stalin. It's that the souls that are on this earth would hear, would know the goodness of Jesus Christ. But we have the same motto. In, in essence, it's forward, unflinching, unswerving, indomitable till the whole task is done. You see, there isn't a point where we lay down our weapons there's still a job to be done. There are moments of achievement, moments of breakthrough that we can celebrate. But even in that celebration, there's a sobriety of recognizing that there's still more to do. And I know that that's tiring to even ponder, but that's our assignment down here. And that vigilance and that watchfulness and that alertness that we must maintain to have a night where we just get inebriated and we lose sense of reality and we lose touch with the gravity of the situation is the great threat to our soul. We must be sharp in our senses. And those senses, first and foremost for us as Christians, are spiritual senses. The bait of false endings. Cozy little spots along the trail to lie down and sleep. So it's interesting because May 6th, 1945, is a false ending. It's a strange statement to make in light of all that has happened in World War II because I understand why Great Britain is going to say once Hitler is done because the, here's the logic. What is the greatest threat? Is the greatest threat Hirohito in Japan? Is the greatest threat Benito Mussolini in Italy? Is the greatest threat Hitler in Germany? It's decided by all. It's Hitler in Germany. And if Hitler falls, the rest crumbles. So to get to Hitler in Germany, I don't know if you guys remember this whole discussion, then they need to be able to attack on the shorelines of France. To be able to do that, they need to control the Atlantic. So the Battle of the Atlantic became the big focus. Why? So they could attack on France, so they could make their way across uh, the, the, the French frontiers and Belgium frontiers and into Germany and take Berlin. They just did that. So you can understand why it's, this is a nice cozy spot to settle down and go to sleep for a while. Let me just rest. Boy, I haven't gotten sleep for weeks. I'm just going to sleep in. I'm going to get to bed early and I'm going to sleep in and I'm not even going to turn on my alarm clock. Those are amazing moments for me. It's so rare in my life. But oh, I love those moments, right? That's Great Britain right now. Great Britain is in such a moment and so is America. Now, America still has the battle in the Pacific. They still have Japan. So there's a little alertness there. But wow, I mean, this is, this is good stuff. Hitler is done. And we've all decided ahead of time, when Hitler falls, the rest is going to fall. Which is true. I'm not going to argue that statement. That is true. Hirohito cannot stand without the distraction over in Europe. 
Now suddenly everyone is focused on him. I mean, this isn't good for, for Japan. So the bait of false endings. We have one right here. I'm going to read a little story from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, it's the bait of a false ending. John Bunyan in his book says, Then I saw in my dream that the travelers continued on their way until they came to a particular region where the nature of the air had a tendency to make one drowsy. That is, with regard to strangers passing through. And it was there that Hopeful began to feel lethargic and sleepy. Boy, even reading it, don't you feel a little weight to your eyes? Therefore he spoke to Christian. Hopeful said, I have now become so drowsy that I can hardly keep my eyes open. So let us lie down here and take a nap. Christian says, in no way, my brother, lest in sleeping we never awaken again. So Christian, this is a good picture of Winston Churchill. Right? I mean, this is exactly what Winston Churchill is saying right now. The rest of Great Britain is basically like hopeful. It's like, oh, wow, I feel so tired. Let's just lie down and take a nap. Hopeful says, friend, why do you say that? To the working man, sleep is very sweet. In taking a nap, we will be refreshed and feel much better. Christian says, do you not remember that it was one of the shepherds who exhorted us to beware of the enchanted ground? By this he meant that we should be careful not to doze there. So let us not sleep as others do, but rather let us watch and be sober. Hopeful says, I do confess my fault, myself at fault, and I, had, I, had I been traveling here alone by sleeping, I would have been in danger of death. So what we're going to see, and I'm trying not to give any uh, spoilers away, but what we're going to see is a hopeful type of bait, and the enchanted ground is where we're at right now. That's, that's exactly what we've stepped upon, and we are so close to the end. In this book, The Pilgrim's Progress, the enchanted ground is like right before they're going to reach the, the river. Remember that river they're going to pass over to the celestial city? It's like they're right there. They're right near the end, but they need to press through. Don't go to sleep here, hopeful. You've got to be kidding. This is not the time to sleep. But it sort of seemed like a great time to go to sleep. Oh, my eyelids are so heavy right now. So that's page 179 of 200. <laughs> I did the, did the math on it, of, of when they get to the celestial city at page 200. And so 90% of the way to the celestial city, and they are going to drop down and take a nap? They, they were even forewarned about this. Stay watchful. Stay vigilant. Stay alert. So where we're at on May 6th is day 2,075 of 2,175 in the war before VJ Day, the victory over Japan. This is 95% of the way to VJ Day. And so you see this parallel. I was sort of hoping it would come out to be the exact mathematical number. That would have been really cool. But, you know, you can't always force those things. It's close. Mark 14, 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch? for one hour. So we have Peter, Simon, who is going to boldly say the night before uh, that he's ready to die with Jesus. And then strangely, uh, Jesus asks him to do one little thing, and that is to watch with him. 
But Peter's eyes, I mean, you can just feel those eyelids and they have little, you know, 10-pound weights attached to them. It's like, well, I'm doing my best to keep them open. I remember I was on a road trip with my dad and uh, my job was to drive shotgun and to keep him awake. And, you know, I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or so. And I, if I was in the back seat, you know, I'm thinking I could stay up, stay awake. I want to stay awake. I, you know, what, what times does a little kid get a chance to stay awake all night long, right? And so I'm going to stay awake. I could not. The moment I got the assignment and it fell on me to keep my dad awake, I could not keep my eyes open. So I'm a, and he, he'd be like, so how you doing over there? I'm like, <laughs> and I'd have drool coming down my face. <laughs> I have never felt so tired in my life. Once I got the assignment of keeping my dad awake, I could not stay awake. And I don't fall asleep easily. I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy, I never fell asleep in school all growing up. You know, so hey, that's a pretty big accomplishment. And there were times I felt like it, right? But I'm not going to do it. And then when I get into this assignment, my, you know, our family's life is at stake. I need to keep my dad uh, awake. I cannot do it. And so I, I can relate to this story. It's a strange kinship that I have with Peter in this story because I feel what he's feeling. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going I'm to stay, stay, stay away. And he's immediately out. And that's, that's not good. There's also something that's going to be exposed in this. And that is, this is before something is going to happen in Christian history. And see, Peter is going to have the desire to go to the end, to finish well. He has the desire, but he's lacking the power. And that's an important thing for all of us to remember in this story is when our flesh identifies with Peter, okay, that's, that's good and that's true. However, our spirit man has something that Peter in this situation doesn't yet have, and that's called Pentecost. See, Pentecost is going to offer us the indwelling of Christ in us so that our physical body comes under the management and the control and the superintendence of the power of God himself. In this situation, Peter is under the management of himself and his good ideas and his desires. And what he has to have shown to his own soul, it has to be proven deep within, is that the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. What he needs is the spirit power of God to indwell this body so that when you go through the enchanted grounds, you can keep walking. The hardest time to pray is in the middle of the night when God wakes you up. You have to, you immediately start declaring that it wasn't God that woke you up. It's like, no, it was just a rustle in the night. It was my dog. It was something because it couldn't have been God because God wouldn't do that to me. I am so tired right now. And there's something, I don't know if you've ever had it, but I had a, a story way back in the day. It's not one of my favorite stories to tell. But I was, I was living in, Les and I were averaging about three hours of prayer a day for a whole season. It was a year or even more. It was a long stretch of time. That's where the book Wrestling Prayer came out of. And Leslie had gone on a trip with Hudson. Hudson was just like a little miniature thing, like a baby or you know, maybe one. He was very, very young. And so they went down to Texas to visit grandparents. And so I was at home, and I remember having the thought, I can get a ton of stuff done. Okay, if, if Leslie and Hudson aren't there, it's like I could just get stuff done. And that like really excited me because I love to create a checklist and then check off on things. And so that's what I was doing. I was, I was working later, and I was still praying but not 
not as intensely as I was when Leslie was there because I was getting stuff done. And so I, that was my excuse. It's like, well, you know, I have a rare opportunity here. So God, I'm going to give a little short prayer time here. And then I, but what's interesting is I turned down the volume of prayer and I turned up the volume of Eric work and I didn't recognize how that would affect me. But through this season of prayer, I had found that I was extremely sharp when the Spirit of God would wake me up in the night. And I, I can't say that throughout all my Christian life, that I've been that way, okay? But in this season, I remember being conscious of the fact that I was extremely sharp, and I was delighted when the Spirit of God would wake me up. I was like, thank you. And I even would cherish the fact that I could do it, because I knew where it was coming from. It was coming from a sharpened blade, that I was spending so much time in the presence of God, and I was so available to his presence that he could call on me at any time. And that's what I cherished, that's what I longed for, and that's what I had. And then Leslie goes out of town, and you know, it's, it's, if you just take a few days away from sharpening your blade, it's not going to harm you, right? Just let's, remember hopeful, let's just take a nap here, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, God had such a lesson for me in this time. So it's like, oh, midnight, and I am extremely tired. Like, extremely tired. I mean, unusually so. And, you know, whatever I'd been doing that day, it was exhausting, right? And I'd been working hard. I'd had some prayer, but, you know, it wasn't quite what it used to be uh, before Leslie left. And, but, you know, I was getting some good stuff done, getting a lot of check marks on my task list. And that night, I remember laying down in bed and having the thought, God, I'm so glad you're not asking me to stay up and pray tonight. <laughs> it's like, why did I have that thought? Why did I have to have that thought? And then... As I, and it was like, it's sort of hard to describe. I've had this happen a few times in my life, but where my pillow is sucking my brain out. You know, it's like, and you're just being like brought into your pillow and you're, oh, it's like a helplessness because your tiredness is so extreme. You cannot stay awake. And right at that moment, there's something in me that felt like God said, Eric, would you watch with me tonight? And I rebuked it as if it was the devil because there's no way God would do that to me and I went to sleep and that night I had a dream that I was called up by Mike Shanahan who was the coach of the Denver Broncos at the time and uh, was called to Broncos training camp uh, and because they'd heard that I can because I can catch a, a football uh, with the best of them and I have really good hands but I'm the you know the the guy that you wouldn't ever picture being a professional football player, okay? You could just acknowledge it. I know that I saw the bubble thoughts above your head. And yet, I always felt like if Mike Shanahan gave me a try, he would recognize that I could play, right? So, and when does the opportunity come? It comes that night when I'm so dead tired. And you know what? I, I had not worked out for a few months at that time. And I remember thinking, my first thought in my dream was, what, why does he have to call when I'm out of shape? If he had called me a few months ago, I would have been ready for this, but now he's going to call and I'm out of shape. This is my dream that I am having that night. And I am like upset about that. I'm mad at that. And so I still show up, but I was out of shape and everyone else was just out doing it, me and every, and I'm trying to go through the tires and I'm tripping over them. And you can see him with his clipboard over there going, oh, why'd we invite this guy? And I was just upset. I'm like, what I wanted to do is stop and say, you should have invited me a few months ago when I was in shape. And we all know that's not the way it works. Eric, you need to be in shape always because you don't know when you're going to be called up to the Denver Broncos for a tryout. 
I know, that's the most obscure <laughs> illustration. Some of you are thinking, I don't know that I want to train for that. And yet, for me, it was my language. And I got, I woke up in the morning, and I was upset. You know why I was upset? Because Mike Shanahan had called me when I wasn't in shape. And this is my lifelong dream. My dream was to play for the Denver Broncos. And when do they call me? When I'm out of shape. And I'm brushing my teeth and I'm upset over this. It's like, have you ever had that where your dream is sort of following you into the day? And you feel it even though you're thinking, that was just a dream, it was just a dream, but oh, why did he call me? I at least wanted to have a dream where I showed Mike Shanahan what I could do. Instead, Mike Shanahan, even in my dream, never got to see what I could do. But I could have, a few months ago even, I could have done it. Brushing my teeth and I'm all upset. And in a strange way, God invades that moment and reminds me that that's exactly what he had. He called on me last night. And I was out of shape. And oh, I tell you what, it hit me so deep. Because who cares about the Denver Broncos and Mike Shanahan? This is the king of all kings. And he did call on me. And I hung up the phone. And I said, oh, that's not really him. And I missed my opportunity. What he had for me that night, I don't know. But I missed it. And I was out of shape. And it's interesting how quickly I could get out of shape. <laughs> because if you knew how much I was praying before that, you would say, oh, well, that should carry over. And yet there's something about the spiritual life that demands a constancy, even though you can rejoice in the fact that Hitler is going to fall, you stay in shape the whole while. You don't just suddenly lose your fitness because you defeat Hitler. And there's something in this, that it, that's why I say it's a very deep and personal thing for me. July 1945. So remember May 6th? What is Churchill saying? Guys, we have a problem. Remember, who, who are the two men that are going to know better about this problem than anyone on earth that Stalin is a threat right now? Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Well, there's an election in Great Britain for who should continue as prime minister. Should it be Winston Churchill or should he be replaced? He's going to be voted out. And this one man who is sounding the alarm saying, guys, we have a problem in Eastern Europe. We can't set down our weapons now. We have to continue forward. Um, thank you, Winston, for all your work that you have done for us, but we're going to ask that you step to the side now. And what is going to commence is what we know as the Cold War. There is a man who understood Hitler long before Hitler took his place, and that was Winston Churchill. And when it's in the darkest hour, they're going to call on him after Churchill or after Hitler has gained all his power. Then Churchill's going to be brought in, and then he's going to solve the dilemma, and Hitler will be removed. And now we have a new problem. And the one man that sees it most clearly is Winston Churchill. And they're going to oust Winston Churchill just like they did in the 30s. And do you know that they're going to bring him back in 1951? Isn't that just the ironies of ironies? In other words, we don't really want to hear what you have to say right now. And so what I want to test our souls with, is: do, are we willing to hear what God wants to say to us right now? Would you watch with me tonight? Oh, God, I don't want to. I am so tired. And yet, this is when we are proven. We, if we dig in our own pockets for what is needed to live this out. This is somewhat of a tense message because 
we all have that same bait like Hopeful did to fall asleep in the enchanted ground. And yet, we all need to have that voice of Christian or that voice of Churchill that will enter in and say, this is not the time to lie down and go to sleep. Did not the shepherds warn us that this enchanted ground could lead to our death if we allowed it to allure us into a state of slumber? We must be sharp right now. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. So I have two different translations. Up top is NASB, down below is King James. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. So that's the ancient uh, phraseology that's going to go all the way back to Moses and his impartation to Joshua of be strong and courageous. It's the same, same phraseology, it's just translated into Greek, and that's what, what translates as act like men, be strong and courageous. So this is a commission to go to battle. That's, that's what this is. He's speaking to a lackadaisical, weak church in Corinth. It's interesting that that's who it was given to. Yeah, I, I think we can identify today. I think we need that. Beyond the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So here's uh, a little blast from the past for us as the church. Forward, unflinching, unswerving, indomitable, till the whole task is done and the whole world is safe and clean. Or, so till the whole world bends their knee and declares that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Until that point, onward. Isn't that good? We need that message today for our souls. Father, sharpen our blade. Lord, for all the staff here at Ellerslie, we know how much has been given out and poured out over the last eight plus weeks. And there is a bait for the enchanted ground to take a little slumber. And Lord, I pray that you would sharpen us as a team right now. And that though you are not against rest, though you are not against sabbatical, though you are not against sleep in and of itself, you are against sleeping when the battle is raging. And Lord, I pray that we would be sharp and sensitive to your Holy Spirit and ready and alert and awake when you need us to be praying. Lord, we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would make us spiritual athletes built for such a challenge as we are facing today. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.